So in a recent study, about four in ten American Christians with evangelical beliefs, which I'm not even sure we can define that anymore, still believe that you can contribute to your own salvation somehow. So why is this important? Well, for thousands of years, this has been kind of like the rub. Biblically speaking, this has even been a rub throughout generations of Jews and, and Christians. There are two views in the Old Testament law. There's the view that the Old Testament law is a mode to be saved through your works, the things that you do if you keep the law. Or there's the view that the Old Testament and the law exists to point out to us a very important truth that you can't keep all the requirements of God in order to be saved. That we need a Savior. So in the text today, what we're going to read in just a second is this transition beginning to take place from the Old Testament prophet who's calling for repentance based upon the law to the New Testament covenant through the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Today is the day where the ministry of John the Baptist goes away. And the most important ministry for salvation, that of Jesus Christ, takes center stage. It's the transition that's spoken about in the prophet Jeremiah when he said this in chapter 31. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah and he spoke of this time, this moment that would happen in John chapter 3 when, when repentance in the Old Testament would pass away or give way to the better covenant, the new covenant that's in Christ Jesus. And, and the Lord said this, but this is the new covenant. I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. We're moving away from an Old Testament covenant to a New Testament covenant. And as with all change, especially this one, this would bring tension, a lot of tension. And it would also bring a kingdom perspective of more Jesus and less you. More Jesus and less you. So here we go in John chapter 3, picking up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 22. Remember John? Uh, told us that Jesus had met with Nicodemus in darkness of night, somewhere in or right outside of Jerusalem. And that's when he told him that for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So in verse 22 it said, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. 
Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. A debate arose here over purification. And it's important to understand why that debate was so important because the religionists of the day, think of the, the Jewish religionists, they were questioning John's disciples. They were, they were going to John the Baptist, they were going to his disciples, and they were trying to create an argument, and they were using Jesus baptizing as sort of a, a tool to draw this argument out. And they were questioning uh, about the validity, validity of Jesus' baptism for purification. Um, because everybody was flocking to Jesus now. You see, the Jews could kind of justify John's baptism because it was a baptism of purification. It was a baptism that was about repentance. It was a baptism that was based upon the law, looking at those things that God said were sins and saying, don't do those anymore, and now you need to repent of those, and you need to be baptized of those things, which is a symbolic washing of yourself from the sins in which you had engaged in. But now people are going from John, and they're going to Jesus, and there's a baptism occurring that isn't doesn't appear to be a baptism of purification, but it appears to be a baptism of something else. And those of you who have been baptized in Christ understand what Jesus was doing. But from those who were strict religionists, they were pushing John's disciples saying, hey, is it or is it not about you know being cleansed of your sins through baptism? And really, probably like most things that have to do with the Gospels, the people who were steeped in religion were concerned about power here, they were concerned about position, and they were creating an argument to discredit everybody and just elevate themselves. But the, the question points out an important truth, and it's this. And it's this idea of moving from the Old Testament covenant to the better new covenant of the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Despite ritualistic washings and cleansings and baptisms as required by the law, you can't cleanse the human heart. You cannot bathe enough to wash 
the human heart. Apart from Christ. And that's an important caveat. Because the baptism that Jesus received was exactly that. Let me give you this idea of ritualistic washings was so steep in Judaism. I just want to share with you again two pictures of when I was in Israel earlier this year. Um, and the first one is, uh, go ahead, Alan, is uh, it's kind of hard to see, but you're looking down into a hole. You can see my shadow and a couple buddies there. Uh, but uh, if you were looking into this hole, what you would have seen is basically a pit There's that people would descend into before they ascended the steps into the temple complex. And they would come into this pit that would have been filled, and there were several of these outside the temple. And you would descend into these pits and you would experience a ritualistic washing so that you were therefore clean enough to ascend the steps and, and head into the temple, the presence of the Lord. Now, the next picture, what you see here, uh, just to give you a little perspective, where that gentleman is standing there right in front of me is where you can see some wrought iron fencing around there. That's one of these pits. So people would go down, they would wash, they would come up. They would ascend these very stairs into the steps into the temple complex. These are also the steps, by the way, where Peter, in this very area, Peter would have stood and preached the sermon at Pentecost in the book of Acts. And what did Peter preach? Repent, therefore, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You have killed the Christ, is what he said, but he did it for you in order that you might be saved. Repent, therefore, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But it's a different baptism than what John was talking about. And on that day, the scripture tells us, as, as Peter preached this sermon at Pentecost, as everybody heard the gospel in their own tongue, thousands came to Christ. And as I thought about that sermon as I was standing there, because this really was just this, this head over heels transition from the Old Testament covenant to the New Testament covenant in Christ, the better covenant of forgiveness. The idea that no longer do I need to go in that pit and be washed every time I want to ascend into the presence of God. How many people on that day who had gone into these pits over and over again to be washed so that they could come into the presence of God, only went into the pit one more time that day. It says that thousands were baptized and added to the body of Christ. Where were they baptized? They were baptized in these pools. But why? One last time. They were baptized because they had already been washed in their hearts through the forgiveness of sin that comes through Jesus Christ. That would day would be the last day that those Jews would ever step foot in those pools of baptism. That's why people in our church or any church that professes and teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, when a person is baptized, they confess Christ, they're born again at that moment, they're saved. They go into the waters of baptism, they're baptized not because that's what washes them on the outside, but because it's a reflection of the cleansing of the heart the forgiveness of sin that's the New Testament covenant in Christ. 
That's the baptism that Jesus was doing upriver. But the people who are clinging to the... Think how much of a power struggle this would create for people who are clinging to the law for their livelihood and their position and their power. And now all of a sudden, there's a man upstream that's baptizing, saying, you've been set free from the law. Wow. Tension must have been really building at this point. And John says these words, this amazing verse, this diffusing verse, this life-changing verse in verse 30, when they begin to push him and they say, they're basically saying, you know, whose side are you on? Are you about this repentance and forgiveness in the law? Or are you about this Jesus who claims to be the Messiah, the baptism of cleansing of the heart and the forgiveness of sins forever? And he's, his response is this, he must increase and I must decrease. There's a lot in that one verse. And that's what I want to pull apart today. That's a question for us all. What enables more Jesus and less you? Because I love you all, but I want to see, just like in myself, I want to see more Jesus in you and less you. So how do we do that? John gives us actually an example here. And I think the first part of the example has to do with the attitude of your heart. Attitude of your what enables more Jesus and less you? It starts with your attitude of heart. You can tell a lot about a person by the attitude of their heart. And you can tell a lot about their heart by what they say and their view of possession. And what I mean by that is, John says here once again, I'm not the Christ. I told you that. I'm not the Christ, he said. That's not who I want to be. That's not who I was called to be. So I'm not the Christos, the Messiah. And here's the danger. When a person generates a following, it can create some pretty intoxicating notions about who they think they are. If you don't believe me, look in the political arena, look at some of the large churches in this country, look at the celebrity status. It's hilarious to me when somebody who makes movies for a living and gets a following based upon making movies for a living, all of a sudden feels like they are an expert in every area of life, right? Matt Damon knows how to heal the environment. He's quite capable of telling you exactly how you should vote. Matt Damon, who has made a couple good movies and a lot of lousy ones, seems because he has a following, He's able to tell you anything and make you believe anything that you want to believe. And just in case you weren't sure, they uh, they get a Twitter account and they get like 2 million followers on Twitter and it just makes them more and more intoxicated. You see it all the time. Athletes, politicians, actors. You know what would kind of solve this whole national anthem debate? Is if we just stop televising these people, go away. We're not going to do that because it's too sensationalistic. It never ceases to amaze me how people who gain a following 
think they know everything, politics, human rights, religion, science, and on and on and on. And yet here you have an example of a guy who had generated a massive following. And when the culmination point arrived, where he could have really put his foot down and made it about him, his response is, I'm not him. It has to be more him and less me. John says he uses a beautiful illustration here to drive the point home. And I know it seems really wordy, and but I want to just kind of pull it apart a little bit. John's illustration that he uses here, he talks about the bride and the bridegroom. John says here that the bride belongs to the bridegroom and no one else. The bride belongs to the bridegroom and no one else. What's he making that statement about? He's saying this, this ministry of his, what the work that Christ is doing, is not about me. It's not about me having a position. It's not about me being personally fulfilled. It's not about me feeling good about myself. It's not about me maintaining a following. It's not about those people belonging to me. It's all about him and it belongs to him. It's a beautiful picture of ownership and possession. The church, the redeemed, those who have been forgiven, they belong to Christ and no one else. You, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you are born again and saved in Him, you belong to Him and no one else. You don't belong to me. You don't belong to your spouse. You don't belong to your children. You belong to Jesus Christ, first and foremost. A friend of the groom, which is another way today, the best correlation to that would be a best man. Nowadays, the best man has kind of less significant and maybe more troublesome jobs, like just, you know, what's the best man's job? You know, he's going to throw a party beforehand and make a toast and maybe kind of keep the guy from putting his tie on the wrong way or something like that. My best man's job was to keep me calm the day that I got married. So he took me out in the backyard of the church and uh, we chipped golf balls into a trash bucket for about an hour and a half. Um, but back in this day, the best man existed simply to serve the groom and remain invisible in all other regards. He had no claims to the bride at all. And the only voice that mattered on the wedding day was the bridegroom's best man or best friend of the bridegroom was to be silent and have no say. It's, it was to be the groom that was to bring the bride joy. Not the friend. It's not us. And it's not our effort. It's Christ. See, the, the bridegroom is the focus of all attention. The bridegroom is to be the focus of all loyalty on the wedding day. It's beautiful and amazing how he, Jesus, who is the groom, gave us a, a model of such an attitude of heart. Even though he is the bridegroom, even though Jesus is the one 
that claims absolute ownership over you and I. Jesus is the one who deserves all of our attention and loyalty while he ministered on this earth. He he gave such a beautiful example of what it means to sacrifice totally and completely for the purpose of God. Philippians 2, Paul talks about this. He says to the church in Philippi, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying there is, here's a guy who had glory, all glory was his. He owned it. And yet he gave of himself, he emptied himself, even to the point of dying for the sake of the bride. He emptied himself completely, even though he deserved all the glory and honor. So when John the Baptist talks about he must increase and I must decrease, the word decrease could easily be related to the example that Christ himself gave, which was completely empty yourself for the sake of God and the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As we decrease, it's a pretty heady responsibility. Now, what enables more Jesus unless you? First, it starts with an attitude of your heart. But the second thing that John exemplifies for us here is it also has to do with your view of authority. What's your view of authority? Just a, a thought off the top of my head. But um, I think it's, it's pretty true. Um, being saved in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ being Lord of your life and owning you completely, go hand in hand. So I'm always a little weird when I hear somebody say, I'm so glad Jesus saved me. I just hope that he never asked me to do this. Or I hope that I don't have to do this. Because that's an issue of authority. In, in a closing explanation here to his disciples, John shares why he's content to decrease. And it's because of the authority and the position that Christ already owns in our lives. Twice, John says that Jesus is above all. We read it in one of our verses this morning during worship time. John says Jesus is above all. End of story. The person who accepted Christ has, has recognized him and trusted in him for salvation, has recognized him also as Lord. And you've placed him above all 
which is exactly where he must and deserves to be. But his reasoning, John the Baptist's reasoning for this is interesting. He says, quote, who comes from above. Right? This phrase jumped out at me today, so I, or this week, so I decided to kind of look at it a little bit from the um, Greek language. And what I learned was this, above is not a place. When we read that, you think above all, your, your first inclination is to think heaven, right? Which later he talks about. But the word above here has more to do with position or superiority. It's the Greek word anothen. Much like if you climbed a great mountain and came back and people were heaping praises on you, and as you refer to the list of those who climbed before you, one name, let's say it's Everest, you would refer to Sir Edmund, Edmund Hillary as the first, right? If you managed to climb Everest, which would be nutty if you did, but if you climbed Everest, you'd be included in a list of people. But the one who is above you would be Sir Edmund Hillary. He would be first, preeminent. So when John says that he is above all, when he points upriver towards Christ, who's now baptizing in, an, in the name of a new covenant, He's saying he is first above all. He came from above. He's preeminent. This is a, a clear reference to Jesus coming from the first, the beginning, which goes back to the beginning of John's gospel. But then he says, not only who comes from above, but he said who comes from heaven. And this is, this is that place of spiritual bliss that we all like to focus upon. It's God's presence, Uranu. In speaking of Adam versus Jesus, the two men, you know, Adam was the first, but when talking about Adam versus Jesus, Paul tells us this as well in 1 Corinthians 15. He said the first man was from earth, that's Adam, a man of dust. The second man was from heaven, that being the man Jesus Christ. When Christ came, and he put on flesh and he walked among us. He left, literally left, heaven. He left preeminence. He, uh, he uh, submitted himself. He emptied himself in putting on flesh so that he could be the bridegroom, the redeemer of you and I. John had all this squared away in his head. He understood when he said, he must increase and I must decrease, it's because he deserves to increase. I do not. Get this. We don't think about this a lot. John the Baptist was a, a sinner just like you and I. He needed to be saved by Jesus Christ just like you and I did. And, and so did Jesus' mother. Sinner. Not queen of the universe. Sinner who needed to be saved just like you and I. He got it. The guy upriver was the only hope that John the Baptist had. So as you generate this following and your life becomes about you or about your struggles or about your problems or about your situation or about your past or about your ministry or about your potential or about your income, whatever it is, there's there's just cause to take a time out and say, you know, 
It's about Him. Him. If my story, my past is about brokenness, how can I use it to point toward Him? If I've sinned in my past, how can I use the story of redemption to point towards Him? How can I use healing to point towards Him? How can I use the good things that God is doing in my life to point towards Him? Jesus himself kind of corroborates this truth in John chapter 8. And he said these words. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. That's really harsh. I'm going away and you're going to die because you're a sinner. Well, that's pretty much in keeping with scripture though. I mean, everything that we learned from the Old Testament and after Jesus in the writings of the Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death, so you live in this world, everybody's going to die. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you in ignorance. Numbstalls. Get it. And he's talking to Jews here. Maybe in a very prophetic sense, Jesus knows exactly the condition of these men's hearts, that they will not repent, that they will not come with him, because they will not deal with their broken sinfulness. But if you would just believe in me, you would live. But I've come from above. Some people aren't going to get that. So here in verse 35, John also refers to Jesus as God sent. So he's sent by God. This is an authority given to Jesus that was birthed out of the mission in the first place. The Father sending the Son and the Son submitting with full authority. The follower of Jesus is content to submit to him because he or she knows what authority Jesus holds in their life. I want to take some time out here and just reflect on this for a second and ask We like the salvation aspect, don't we? I mean, we like the idea that Jesus came and he died for us in order that we might receive eternal life kind of a fire insurance thing that, um, yes, I've sinned. I, I recognize that I'm not perfect, God. I need you. Will you forgive me? I walked an aisle. I got in some water when I was a kid, whatever the case may be. How's the submission going? How's the lordship going? Who is he in regard to authority over your life? He deserved it before you asked him to be your savior. And he definitely deserves it after you trusted him for your salvation. He deserves it. Not only does he deserve it, he commands it. We want Jesus on our terms. Big crack in American we want Jesus on our terms. He does not have to meet any obligation from you or I. 
He does not have to make you happy in a particular area of your life. He doesn't have to fix something that you think needs fixing. These are hard truths. Jesus Christ owes us nothing. But the flip side of that coin is he gave us everything. John the Baptist understood this. If your heart gets this and wants this, wants to see more Jesus and less of you, and if your view of his authority in your life is right and good, I think you will see Jesus Christ increasing and you decreasing. But it brings me to the last point this morning, which is this. What enables more Jesus and less you? It comes down to that last verse that we read this morning in verse 36. John said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What enables more Jesus and less you? It's the person who has received eternal life. It's the receipt of eternal life. There's no way Jesus can increase in your life unless you've been born again. Believers in Christ are in a state of forgiveness. They know they've been forgiven. And they're awaiting the promise of eternal life. But get this. Those who are disobedient to Christ, disobedient to the gospel message, are in a state of constant condemnation where God's wrath rests upon them. What a horrible state that is. That's the work of evangelism. That's the work of us as believers in Christ to go to people and say, you're in one of two places. You're either a friend of God where you have trusted in the salvation of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness and blessing reigns upon you or you have rejected him and you're in a state of condemnation constantly and his wrath rests upon you. There's only two camps in the world. And John the Baptist says here, look, um, quite honestly, whoever's believing in the Son, you've got life. And if you're not, if you're being disobedient, you are guaranteed the wrath of God. And when we say wrath of God, this isn't like even just horrible B-movie wrath that you would see in Hollywood. Like, this is... This is a level of condemnation and wrath that is incalculable in the human mind. And not something that will go away when this life is over. Those who have recognized Christ for who he is, I think they also understand who they are and what they deserve. As a believer in Christ, someone who was saved as a teenage boy, I can tell you what I deserve is not what God has given me. What I deserve is nothing. Actually, what I deserve is punishment. And Paul said, even the good things that I do for God are rubbish, trash. So what I deserve is the 
is absolutely horrible. Yet on the cross, I know my Lord took all that upon Himself. All my trash, wrath, and punishment upon Him so that I can stand before you today as a person who is in righteousness because I've been forgiven. So, I understand what I deserve. Those who are disobedient in Christ, they sit in their sin and they sit under judgment. And as Peter says, 2 Peter 2, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. There it is. Bold, arrogant people. They do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. True, genuine conversion of somebody results in a person willing to sit under the authority of God. It's a Holy Spirit understanding that that person receives. It's a willingness to submit. It's a a willingness to forego things in their life if it's not of God. It's a, a willingness to have a new allegiance in your life. It's a, a new boss that's in town that will never leave. And there's no consideration for yourself apart from Christ. Every decision you make, everything that you do, every direction that you go in life is filtered through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. John got this. He must increase. I must decrease. The people who are going to reject this understanding are the people who have not been born again. Look, the big issue I want to just get home here this morning is this. I think this whole thing comes back to your identity. Is your identity your sickness? Is your identity your family? Is your identity your job? Is your identity your church? Is your identity your spouse? Is your identity your hardships? Is it your ministry? Because John the Baptist seemed pretty content to throw all that away just so Jesus could receive what Jesus deserved. Paul got it. In his epistles, look, these verses won't be on the screen, but just listen to these references. Paul, who was chief among all Pharisees, all Jews, he just gave it all away, he just walked away from it all to take a life of nothingness so that Jesus Christ could increase. I would say there'd be no Western church today if it were not for the work that God did through the Apostle Paul. And in his epistles, we read, Paul said, I'm clothed in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.3. I'm crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20. I'm hidden in Christ, Colossians 2.3. I'm alive in Christ, Romans 6.11. I'm baptized in Christ, Galatians 3.26. I'm found in Christ, Philippians 3.9. We are all workers in Christ in Romans 6.9. We are approved in Christ, 
Romans 16.10. We are chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1.4. It's clear if you search Paul's words that upon his salvation, his personal identity went away. It went away. He even said when people were debating over, were you baptized by Paul or were you baptized by Apollos? He says, I don't care. We're all baptized in Christ. That's what matters. Christ increased in that man. And yet the gospel is also replete with examples of those who struggle to decrease. In Luke 9, those who Jesus said to follow me, but they couldn't for various reasons. They couldn't follow him because the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. What does that mean? It's going to be an uncomfortable life sometimes to follow Jesus. Or they couldn't follow him because they were more concerned about their parents. They couldn't follow him because they were more concerned about their family. And in Mark 10, there's the example of a man who had kept all the laws. Yet why was he broken and unable to follow Christ? Because his identity was his wealth. And he couldn't give it up. So my closing question to you this morning is this. Are you prepared to disappear in Christ? I would hope and pray this church would go on. Though I'm a pastor for a season, but maybe 80, 90 years from now, nobody knows my name. And nobody knows your name. But there's a legacy that's been built over people who are willing to decrease so that Christ might increase. If you're hanging up in your life today is your own personal situations, if you can't get out of your own way, in order to move forward for Jesus Christ. And maybe it's a lordship salvation. Maybe you've never truly surrendered your life to him in the first place. If you're here and you're you're saying, you know, I just can't follow God right now because I'm struggling in this area or I've got issues with him about this. What has he done? aside from dying on the cross for you and taking every ounce of punishment that you deserve for all of eternity that is justifiable in not following Jesus. Men, set the example in your home. Put Christ first. Put your pride down. Grab your wife by the hand and pray with her from time to time. Let your children see you and know that Jesus is more important to you than they are. Let your wife know that the most important thing to you is Jesus and not her. And sometimes be willing to say no to your children if it means that you are forced to say no to Christ. They'll get it someday, I promise. They will get it. And women... Throw away the whole cultural context and definition of what submission means. Laying yourself down for Jesus Christ means that because I follow Christ, I trust in Christ enough to follow Him. And I will pray for Him, and I will lay everything down in my life in order to see my husband solidified in Christ.
I'm going to do it. And when it comes to the things of personal gain and comfort in this world, sometimes God's going to call you to lay those things down too. In the country of Moldova, where some of us have been to do missions work, when a person is born again, they're not called a Christian. They're called a repentant. And that word sticks with them. And I'm glad. I wish we'd call people here born again or repenters because the word Christian doesn't seem to mean anything in this country anymore. It's just a word that's been hijacked by political agendas. It's done being doled out for political purposes. Let's be sold out followers of Christ who are willing to say, he must increase, I must decrease. Let's pray.